Earlier today, I had the chance to speak with my friend and fellow auctioneer, Lucas Hunt. We talked poetry, we talked auctioneering, we talked auctions versus pledge moments, how we deal with tough situations. We talked introductions to podcasts and how much I struggle with these. This is the third attempt I've had. The first two, thankfully I was able to delete those. But about this conversation with Lucas, the audio is a little brutal up front, but stick with us. Please, 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 please. We sit, switch over not too deep in to a Wi-Fi connection. It gets a lot better. And I guarantee you, if you're in any bit of a low mood, he will help lift you right up. And so, music is always by Matthias Wild. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening. Hello. Lucas. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? <sighs> Lucas, you and I have... Can... We've been friends for how long? Four years? Five years? We, we, yeah, we met at the swimming pool in McCarran Park in the summer of 2015. So going on five years. That's right. And... I just, I just feel more focused and productive than I've ever been in my entire life. Wow. Wow, that is awesome. And uh, is it all about Corona Convos or just everything's coming into focus? Corona Convos has provided me a framework and cross-training for the rest of my life. So I've, <laughs> I've never had an endeavor like this that forced me to be so focused for such sustained periods of time. And one of the interesting things about being an auctioneer is I often talk about how I organize my day to be at my very, 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 very best for 12 to 42 minutes a couple nights a week. And mm -hmm. the rest of my life is so relaxed around that and easy breezy, play some chess, scroll through Instagram, sleep in, stay up late, exercise, eat tasty food, make myself happy, meditate, it all used to culminate in being as prepared as possible for that time slot, usually between, let's say, 7.45 and 9.30, and just being a laser beam of fundraising focus. And that, yeah. that made me somewhat, <laughs> um, somewhat slack in other parts of my life because my organizing principles were... The, just these little tiny, uh, you know, f explosions. Um, it let me off the hook in all other parts of my life. And so by shifting the paradigm to more sustained focus, uh, all self-motivated, no clients. I mean, nobody's, you know, nobody's telling me to do these. Like it has, like I have to wake up and be uh, genuinely enthusiastic because nobody's paying me to do it. Nobody's saying, hey, CK, make sure you do a good interview. It, it, the self-motivation is is new to me. Um, and, you know, I look at someone like you who has been so self-motivated in so many different ways across the span of your life. Uh, how many books have you published? Uh, let's see. Um, four to date, and my fifth book will be coming out later this year about New York. Like, think about that. That was something I never possessed the uh, stamina or inertial power to um, even get close to achieving. Mm. Well, to be an artist is to have some uh, modicum of discipline, and it sounds like you're becoming an artist with, uh, with this podcast, and maybe someday you'll have sponsors who you'll have to get up and work for, but right now it's completely 
uh, at your leisure and it's impassioned you to just do it, right? There's no, uh, there's no requirement, but it's just pure passion, which I find the greatest joy in doing those things. So you, what are you waking up early now? I am definitely not waking up early. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Um, that's why, you know, when we're young and we have to get up for school or go to the gym, if you're in sports, you know, you're in training and, uh, I don't feel like I'm in training for much right now. So what, what are you doing? Are you, are, are you writing poetry? Well, uh, I've been editing poetry, which to me is kind of like poetry light working on a manuscript about Paris. About what? Which will come, uh, Paris, the city. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Uh, so I've been editing those poems and then, uh, poems about Rome too because I have this five book deal uh the first one was about Iowa the second one the Hamptons this third one is New York coming out later this year and then the two remaining are books about Paris and Rome so I've been uh memories and uh, man I miss those cities I was planning on going to Rome this summer but you and I both uh, I have to do a virtual tour yeah you were too yeah, I was uh, supposed to be attending a wedding uh, outside of Tuscany in last week in May, and so we're flying through Rome uh, right there, and that is no longer. Right, and yeah, oh man, you know, we'll just have to pretend we're in Italy this summer. <laughs> That's gonna be tough. Uh, to, but... I, I don't have those powers of imagination. <laughs> Well, maybe it's the powers of wine. I don't know if I have the imagination, but you know, music and nature and no, there's no way to replicate, uh, to simulate those experiences. I mean, literally the opportunity would be, I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, can I go online, you know, and, and tour Paris and see things and research and get that same feeling that I would from the happenstance of choosing to walk left down this street and, you know, encountering a square and a statue that I'd never even planned on seeing. So the whimsy of poetry, I think is really important. Um, and the discipline of being an artist is really just putting yourself there, you know, putting yourself in the, in the place and then seeing what happens. And then committing to recording and editing it. <laughs> yeah. You're doing that now too, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the editing process. The editing takes some time. And it's not particularly fun. Like, you know, I open up these files on GarageBand. I've been trying to be a little bit more proactive about doing intros after I record mm -hmm. the the conversations. In the intros, I'm finding shockingly hard. There is something about sitting at my desk in front of a microphone with no script that I thought I was going to be killer at because I'm so used to walking on stage with a microphone and an audience and no script and just being able to have magic come out of my mouth in a lot of instances. And for some reason, it's not <laughs> translating to this, this medium as easily or as seamlessly as I had hoped. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's hard. Do you watch, you know, other talk shows or other introductions like, you know, uh, old David Letterman shows or something where, you know, it's just, it's a few lines and I don't think you have to say too much, um, just a setup, but, um, maybe you can steal some intros. Well, I've been listening to, I've always been a big conversational podcast listener, whether it's Terry Gross yeah. or Ezra Klein with Vox or you know, Kara Swisher with Recode Decode. I listen to way too much of the Ringer Podcast Network, the Bill Simmons. I think Ryan Russillo is really good. And so they do have these intros before podcasts. And I just thought it was going to be easy. I heard them do it. I was like, I do that on stage. This should be simple. And it's not. And so I'm at, for a while there, I was making these crappy intros for episodes like zero through 20 and then I took 30 episodes off because I hated being so bad at it and recently I've just recommitted to being bad at it and understanding that if I keep doing it I hopefully will get better
you could also just work with a writer. I could, but I want the skill set to be not reading a script. I see. Right? Because yeah. I yeah. I like I like the idea that I can just speak eloquently and compellingly from the heart without having prepared remarks because that's what I've been able to do mm. in a gala setting and mm-hmm. it, it just seemed intuitive to me that that would translate and so far it hasn't mm. to the same degree what's a podcast it's a podcast it's flavor as opposed to a talk or as opposed to a radio show you know what do you think jumps out at you in terms of this genre uh, that might help you set up your intros. Like what, what do you need to do when you intro somebody in a podcast, uh, as opposed to on a stage or, you know, in a studio? It's a good question. What do I need to do? Well, you know, one thing about a podcast is it's so loose in form and it can, it doesn't have commercial breaks. It can, cover a lot of ground um you know mine are very yeah. underproduced uh i go in and fix the levels on the sound uh a lot of the time uh but beyond that i'm not doing a lot of uh, uh back-end production but to your question yeah. what does a what does an intro do you know so in my mind what an intro does is it sets the scene it makes people want to listen but I think it's also an opportunity to sell myself. So I feel like if I'm mm-hmm. good at intros, then what I can hopefully do is that people, as I slowly, 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 slowly expand my listener base, I think that it will be in part a increasingly improved introduction that will bring the listener in. because they will expect a certain quality of yeah. charm, charisma, intelligence, eloquence to come through in that introduction that is for yeah. them the opening. So that's why I was so frustrated with how rocky and uneven it's been. I, I think going back to galas, you and I are very particular about how we present ourselves to an audience. And so prior to anybody hearing a word out of our mouths, we're hyper conscientious about what they are seeing. And I think that we are confident in our ability to woo a crowd, seduce a crowd, put them under our spell in a very short amount of time. And so I've been trying to figure out how to get that same sort of magic to work in this medium. And I haven't been pleased so far. It's your hook. Yep. Yeah, it's your hook. I, I, I would try to borrow, you know, grab some phrases that, you know, maybe a phrase that you like or, or a tone that you like and, and try them out. But you'll find what's right for you. You know, I've used the same intro almost 100% of the time for the last five years on stage. Have you really? Yeah, almost always, because I used to be nervous, and so I, early on in my career, grabbed onto this phrase, uh, and um, I, at first, I was I used it very ser- sincerely, I think, for the first few years. What was it, or what is it? All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's come to the part of the program you've all been waiting for, the law, and that was it. And uh, I started to get tired of it, right? But yeah. it was, I, I, always was, I, I always was confident because I knew what I was going to say at least that first line. And if you take, you know, Toastmasters speaking classes, they say, well, you need to know, you know, at least the, the first line of your speech, you know, memorized, and then like your three main points, and then you need to know your conclusion. You know, it's classic essay structure yeah. um, right out of Aristotle. I didn't really start to, I was going to get rid of that line until one evening I jumped up on stage and I always said it reflexively. 
ladies and gentlemen, it's come to the part of the program you've all been waiting for. And I paused a little more and people, I, I noticed someone in the front was looking at me and I said, the live auction. And this man just burst out laughing uh, at one of the front tables. And I realized that he wasn't waiting for the live auction. (laughs) Last thing that he wanted to happen. And uh, I realized that something that, um, you know, we think instinctively or or reflexively works or means this uh, can come off totally ironically to someone else. And so I started playing with the irony of it. And I found that people really, you know, they would giggle more just through the inflection. So, but how, um, I don't how, know if it's what you, how you say it. But do you do that after for if, if there's no auction and just a pledge moment? Ah, well, you you always used a good line there, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We have nothing more to sell, right? Yeah, I mean th- th- that was sort of the standard. That was oftentimes threaded through, but say you're going on stage after a really sad, heart-rending moment, do you still use that same line? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, If there's no auction, right? Because we're auctioneers and that that seems to be the bread and butter and how we get our foot in the door. Uh, It's hard for me actually sometimes to to start off without, and I don't, I mean, but in my mind, I'm getting up there and I'm like, well, I'm not doing an auction, you know? And, and, um, so a lot of times there, it's just, or that it's a tile thing that we do there, you know, uh, there's no good word for it. Like I've heard people say asker, uh, or, um, I mean, what are we when we're asking people for those donations. So uh, this is what I talked to Harry about the- yesterday. Like we were like, he hates the yeah. term auctioneer. He's like, I'm not an auctioneer. Like, I sell things. I'm a, I'm a performer, yeah. but I'm a very specific type performer, of performer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to always think of myself as a performer until, uh, yeah. performing, you know, he, he said, stop thinking of it as a performance. Quick question for you. Um, do you yeah. by any chance happen to have Skype? Yeah, Skype. You want to switch to Skype? I, I want to switch to Skype because I think that um, that the signal is picking up other calls and they're 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 coming in. So I'm gonna I'm gonna push stop on this. Would you text me your Skype name and then then we'll switch over? Hello. Oh, that's so much clearer. Oh yeah, it is. Oh, it's muffled. It was it, muffled. It, it was, and you know, I mean that's. Uh, the, the the mysticism, the the mysteries of these calls, what works and what doesn't work. But this is making you me much to, happier. Yeah, you want to do like take two or just keep rolling? You know what? Let's just keep rolling. And we okay. go back a little bit because it was falling apart at the end there. But what, mm-hmm. I, what I really am curious about is when you don't have the auctioned format to lean into, what and are is there something clicking in the background there? That's me. I put that down. <laughs> I was flipping. <laughs> you know that little iPhone, uh, the, the AirPod case. It's like a Zippo lighter almost. Yeah. You can flick it open and shut. It's got a magnet. I put it down. I'm trying to be. <laughs> and the thing is, is like I'm trying to be a better, like more authoritative host. Early on, I interviewed a buddy that pretty obviously like had a coin or a pen in his hand and he was sitting at a desk and you could just hear him go tap 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 and <laughs> it took me four times as long to edit the conversation because i had to cut out all those cut when i was talking but he was also doing it when he was talking and that was ineditable uneditable for me yeah and so he wasn't translating into um morse code for your listeners it was i mean maybe he was that would have been some next level <laughs> shit right there um, but you know, those are sorts of the things that it's funny because everybody who speaks to me is speaking to me as a favor. Like, mm-hmm. like what generosity from my network and extended network to take time to talk to me for my little project. And mm-hmm. so I get nervous making additional demands. Like, can you not play with something? Can you go to something more <laughs> quiet? Like, who the fuck am I to do that? But... You know, it's like one of those things where I, I need to get better and more comfortable making those requests. You got to be strict. 
You got it to, to a certain extent, yeah. right? Like, yeah, this is a podcast, this kids. Is, this you is know, a podcast. <laughs> and I genuinely get so excited to talk to people. Like, yeah. you know, I spoke with Harry for a little over an hour yesterday, and you and I haven't spoken you know, to any extent since Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th of March. <laughs> Think how things yeah. have changed. Like, there's so much for us to cover, and I'm in zero rush. Like, this is what I do now. Um, but before we kind of get into the meat and potatoes of all that has happened, uh, since March 13th, I am curious when you don't have the framework of an auction Yeah. and somebody is talking about something on oftentimes sad and hopefully really sad. (laughs) It helps. (laughs) It helps for fundraising. You know, yeah. I, I've actually had some instances where it's been too sad and it's been, it, it was inappropriately sad and it it wasn't convert. It was almost like tangential to the mission. It just was like all they did was, hey, how can we ratchet up the sad factor and not actually like synthesize it or, or make it seamless with what we're trying to raise money for. And it, people just were crying and they weren't paying attention to me. But wow, we'll get to that. What? What do you? How, what's your approach? Because if you have right. a standard line for auctions that is yeah. not necessarily appropriate for pledges and pledge onlys. Oh, I changed my standard auction line. Okay, so let's let's then <laughs> take us through. You, you your standard auction line was, well, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Now we've come to the it's, part of the evening that you've all been waiting for. Right. You know, wink, wink. Uh, well, first of all, so, it wasn't wink, wink, and then somebody laughed, no. and it became wink, wink. So it it yeah. it evolved into wink, wink. Yeah, it became a joke, uh, and then I wanted to change. This spring, I had this philosophy of I want to change, and we're going to get you. to the introduction on on what we call the appeal. No, uh, but I wanted to feel, uh, you know, if you repeat things over and over, sometimes you lose the meaning. Sometimes they gain meaning, you know, you like tell someone that you love, you love them over and over and it means more and more. But uh, if you were, you know, sometimes lines lose their potency. And I, I, I realized to me that what had power and efficacy in language was a phrase. Um, uh, part of the evening, you've all been waiting for live auction. You know, there's like, there's, to me, there's power in phrases. I'm of a poet, so I look, look to those words. And I wanted my own phrase, you know, because I borrowed that phrase from an MC that I'd heard once. Um, he called me auctioneer extraordinaire, the man who travels with a gavel. And uh, that's pretty good. I, yeah, I dropped that intro, but um, I thought about what uh, I thought about the sincerity of what the auction meant to me, and I realized I wanted a phrase for it. And I thought it's a vibrant business, and I hadn't heard I like that, that phrase before. Yeah. So then I changed it. And only this spring, actually, I think I would probably forget about it if we weren't talking. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, it is my exclusive privilege to engage you in the vibrant business of this evening's live auction. Right? (laughs) Took me five years. Poetry. (laughs) Exclusive privilege phrase. uh, Engage you. uh, That was not really a phrase, but um, the exclusive vibrant business because i like that word vibrant and i don't you know i'm sure it's overused but i don't overuse it so exclusive privilege you know vibrant business and i thought that was quite perky you know that was a nice um that perked me up yeah someone said that prose is walking and poetry is dancing and oh interesting yeah there is such a lovely two-step in that intro for yourself that's great i'm i'm on board take it take it and run i think if prose is walking and poetry is dancing i want to find the phrase to strut (laughs) with yeah the phrase to strut um but uh back to what you you asked so yeah you, you can't always strut when you are Doing an appeal or a pledge moment or a fund a cause, fund a need, direct pledge, they're all synonyms for the same thing. You yeah. can't do that when an auction has been excised from the evening 
and you are coming in or coming to the stage following a really heart strings pulling moment. Right. Because this is supplication, not bravado. Um, you know, the auction is a demonstration of, of sort of, in a way, monetary, uh, what do we call that when you're on top? You know, the alpha, I always say, who's the alpha bidder tonight? But, um, you know, there's a bit of a dance there and a bit of strut um, and a bit of, um, yeah, back and forth. It's a contest sometimes between people in the room and also between the auctioneer and the bidder. But when you come in in a pose of supplication, right? So here the humor really has to be humble. And, you know, there's no, I don't, you know, there's no really space for cheekiness there. I usually come out with gratitude. You know, I have core values um, in my business and um, gratitude, positivity, encouragement. Um, those are, that's the spirit of what I walk on with. But a lot of times, probably like you, I don't know what to say. There and I, go. and I, Yep. And I don't assume that I'm going to know, you know, the night before, the hour before, just like you said, someone may take it too far. Someone may. And when I say someone, the, the speaker who's sharing their story, usually being very vulnerable, sometimes, unfortunately, being very rehearsed and not as vulnerable. But uh, I try to walk up and ask for guidance there from my higher power, from, from you know, a, a very empathetic intuition that we have as, as heartfelt members of the philanthropic community and say, I don't know, you know, I'm gonna ask, but usually I start off with thank you to the speaker. And I usually focus all my attention and the room's attention back on that speaker. Um, you know, uh, and I don't, there are different kind of pseudo formulas phrases i should say not formulas but usually bringing it right back to them and they are the particular what is the universal right and so they may have told this and the more particular they can be the more personal they can be then there's that slow walk of prose into the back to the universal because there are so people just like that. true yeah you are really yeah. breaking this down in a perfectly in illuminating academic manner that i'm appreciative of oh yeah well i mean it's so it's communication right and we have to know our audience i never took a course in discourse or debate rhetoric, rhetoric persuasion i didn't have that in high school um but when you listen to persuasive speakers they know who they're talking to and um yeah and so we know our audience somewhat you know different classes and different socio economic background um i think maybe what we know even more is who we're speaking for and that is the voiceless the oppressed the sick the marginalized you know those who who maybe aren't heard in the media and aren't heard really that is the gala the gala is to to share this voice and, and pablo neruda you know was a very um well-known poet from Chile, and, and he wanted to always speak for the working classes in his poetry. He was a communist. And so when he wrote, he wanted to write for the bricklayer, you know, for the plumber. And he wanted his language to be intelligible. He didn't want to use five-syllable words to communicate what a one or two-syllable couple words could do. And I think like that, you know, his definition of poetry was to give voice to the voiceless. And I feel like in that moment, when we're supplicating to the to the um, privileged masses, um, we have to consider our language so carefully, so carefully, and um, and ask with with real uh, humility. Has it never not come? Yes, you know it. You know it, right? You know that yeah. feeling when you deliver the appeal and appeal even cheapens what it is when you share when the story is shared the narrative is bared the heart is open you know their tears may be in the eyes and there are people that are willing but for whatever reason that night whether it was the market that day or something they ate <laughs> you know maybe the chicken wasn't totally cooked all the way 
nobody's or maybe the organization has overshot their their number you know they think they have someone with 20,000 or 10,000 and they don't you know and so then you get those crickets and all that love and humility and hope man that is probably one of the hardest moments in our job that is a miserable moment but i'm curious it's <laughs> right it's awful and we can talk about that but yeah. i first want to address uh, have you ever walked out onto stage for a pledge moment yeah and been at a loss for words prior to actually asking for donations so you are never at a loss for words for auctions because you know exactly how you're going to start every time. You have either, you know, this season you had your, you know, your vibrant business and prior to the season you had your, ladies and gentlemen, now you've come to... Part of the evening yeah. that you've all been waiting for. So that was always going to be there for you for an auction. Did you ever come out on a stage without an auction as a gentle on-ramp and go off the road. You mean like ten go on a tangent or, or meander? Just, or just not have anything to say at all? Struggle to find the words? Yeah. Um, there's always the silence there, which I find uh, not an adversary, but um, kind of an advocate, you know, less is best. Uh, the economy of language is important in that moment. You don't even have that much time. Yeah, with, you know, like with your intro for a podcast, it's your hook. And the less you say, maybe the better. Uh, wow, have I ever come up and really struggled to... There are times, there are certainly times where the speaker has taken my thunder, if I thought I had any thunder. Yeah. And so or I sucked think the air out of the room. I've gone after some yeah. terrible speakers that went on and on and on. Oh, right. And I just would watch a room full of people wilt. And so yeah. by the time they said thank you and good night, every little ounce of energy or spring had been completely demolished and i walked yeah. out there and the room was just slack mm, the energy is just gone yeah so it's not that people are yeah. sad it just that it was the person Depleted. preceding me just was whatever the uh polar opposite of charisma is <laughs> and oftentimes it's it's not even the person's fault. They're not professional speakers and they haven't been set up for success by me, like by guiding the organization and saying, look, we the, the, we can't rely on this person to be great. And so we have to work with them and work with them and, and, and ensure that they understand they need to speak, to stick to the script. They can't go yeah. off. And like, you have to have a contingency plan in place if it is somebody who, you know, doesn't necessarily have the experience to put so much money on what they're going to say. And yeah. early in my career, a couple of times, I just didn't think to it. I just, I just assumed that the organization was going to be working with them. And now it's part of like, you know, my prep to be like, Hey, <laughs> don't <laughs> leave this up to chance. But yeah. you know, in those other moments, it was terrible. You walk out there and you're like, Oh God. This room, this room is in a torpor. It's suffocated. Yeah, I think the polar opposite of charisma for me is like the chairman of the board sometimes. The, uh, the head, the one, the head, you know, not yeah. the heart. The one who, uh, who knows. The one who knows and uh, is, is so willing to give their TED talk. Uh, yeah. But... And it's weird too, because like sometimes that person can be so good. I went went after Sally Jewell, the former Interior Secretary of the United States under Obama, and she was fascinating. She gave that TED talk; it was great. But everybody was just sort of wrung out to dry afterwards. She'd taken them on an incredible journey, but that journey did not end in fundraising. 
and I walked out wow, there, yeah. and people yeah. just were kind of ready to go home. Like they'd had their night. And I was like, I've got to raise fifty thousand more dollars, and I had no idea where to go from there. Well, that's compassion fatigue, right? People yep. can't care that Beautifully much for that long. <laughs> compassion <laughs> fatigue. I'm. Compassion. That's the first thing I am confident I'm going to steal from this conversation. I love Take that. Take compassion fatigue and warn people that they're long. You know, they're, oh, oh, but they're so inspirational. Don't trust me. Their 10 minutes will, yeah, they'll drain the room of tears. I think to answer your question about what I've done in those times where the particular has failed me is I'll fall back on the universal. And for me, that involves, um, so you've got your auction and that's fun. And I, you know, been to auction college and I have training to fall back on there. No matter how bad the auction goes, I fall back on my training. I'll sell the next lot. I'll close it out. But when we do what we do and ask for people to give, uh, and from I'll call it in a supplicating manner, um, never beggary, but sometimes it is fancy panhandling. Um, say the uh, say the speaker, you know, the particular speaker prior to the ask. I hope this isn't too technical. For no, I listeners. love this. <laughs> Lucas, this is for us. It could be for us. It could be for anyone at a dinner party, uh, or you know. Oh, I like just, this. Nice pivot. If you follow someone who is especially, maybe especially enigmatic, or or um, they may have a lot of charisma, but they could just be very flat. How do you revive the room? You know, um, how do you follow someone who's really good or really bad? And what I do is fall back on what is that moment, right? What is that ask? And I've created, and I hopefully have tried to create ahead of time, what I call a theater of giving, okay? There's a theater of war, a theater of the absurd, a theater of everything. Um, the, the theater of giving for me involves the creation of, of, of a couple strong emotions that um, will create a catharsis. And for me, the giving part is, is about catharsis. How can we help? How can we change? What can we do? Well, you can raise your paddle. You can give. And so if all else fails, you know, if, if uh, the, the soldiers in the battle have been shot down, I'll come back up as the general and reiterate, not the general because it's not the theater of war, but I'll go back to sort of the script. And, and what we're doing is we're trying to generate this catharsis. So... Pity and fear. Pity and fear um, are the two powerful emotions that Greek tragedy were built upon. And uh, it was written, Aristotle wrote about this, that when an audience comes to a theater, they want to see something that moves them so deeply that they walk away feeling new, you know, uh, or they've come to a new awareness. And he identified that what happens with the downfall of heroes uh, in tragedy is that people are so uh, afraid that if this could happen to uh, Oedipus, you know, a king, if, if something so profoundly tragic could happen to a king, it could happen to, to anybody, you know, and, and so it's, it's fearful it didn't happen to me, though. It happened to a king. It's sort of distant. Um, but you have this pity because you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, he's a great leader. He was so wonderful. And so I hope that I'm able to bring that feeling back to the room in the moment. And like you said, sometimes people are just checked out. But for me, I know that if I can um, connect to some of that <laughs> Greek epic tragedy that I think there'll be at least some kind of a catharsis and hopefully the money will roll. That doesn't always work. Are you worried at all that pity and fear are short-term solutions that are going to, in the long term, hurt yeah. fundraising endeavors for an organization uh, that, that that sensation of pity and fear won't want their... Uh, will, disincentivize their supporters to come back i would be worried if i was that good i don't think i can actually scare anybody and um for me i don't fully even understand what pity is i know it's involved with uh empathy and i think it's connected with a kind of love where where 
you know, like when someone on the street we see is asking for a dollar, um, you know, it's easier for us to pity them than to love them. So I feel like pity might be an easy love. Uh, it's something that people can give. Um, and and love, real love is more, you know, you're going to need to receive. You're going to probably need to invite this homeless man into your home and feed them if you love them. Or you're going to need to take an extra step. So maybe pity for me is light love. And the fear for me is just like, wake up, you know. God forbid we ever had to walk a mile in their shoes. Um, it's, it's a reminder. Um, and so I'm not, I don't feel I'm that great of a, a psychologist or that great of a communicator that I'm going to scare the shit out of anyone or turn it into a pity party. Um, and I'll never beg, you know, I'll never say, please do this, please do that. Um, but for me, that just keeps it in mind. Like without, without this, um, philanthropy, right? Philanthropy is the love of humankind. So the love of people without that, it's a pretty frightening world, you know, and, and without pity for those who suffer without that compassion, it's a really frightening world. And I don't talk in those universals, but they help me connect to the moment. So even if all else fails, I know I can bring what you call an A game uh, to that moment. That is a phenomenal explanation because yeah. initially I thought of pity and fear as being in the same terrible boy band as guilt. And <laughs> Guilt for me yeah. is something that I avoid with a just a complete fear. Like I, a guilt is is really a non-starter for me at these fundraisers because I think that guilt can be used effectively at galas, but it yeah. is a short-term strategy. And so, just in my mind, I associate pity and fear with guilt. But your technical explanation, um, I thought, was very articulate and interesting and gave me a much more uh, clear sense of what you were trying to communicate. So interesting. Yeah, no, the, it's, it's a big bag. And it reminds me of something a priest said once before I went on stage, he said, uh, good luck up there tonight. And I was like, Oh, thank you very much. He's like, if you know how to get them to give and us, no, you got to guilt them into giving. And I was like, ah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, do that but i use that line sometimes you know <laughs> you're like that, that might work for you father but it doesn't work for me yeah right <laughs> the church but uh i don't want to just i don't want to disqualify any emotion you know i want to have all of them i if i need i've gotten angry before and i don't think it's good yeah we've but, talked about um, that yeah and but i don't i don't want to go up and say i can't you know use anger guilt punishment fear like in a way, I want to be not ruthless, but um, when I think of the theater of giving, I think, well, any kind of theater, you know, where all the emotions are are fair game, but certainly some of them are dangerous, right? Yeah, it's, like pride would be very dangerous. Pride would be. I I go the opposite direction, and I if if appropriate, I try to use self deprecation because yeah. there are some instances where you've had a very sad speaker and then the organization has promised you and guaranteed that when you start asking for money there will be people in the room who are going to give and so you have built in momentum to carry you forward and yeah. <laughs> as you were referencing a few minutes ago uh, when I was asking about what you do uh, in uh, awkward situations that's more in line with what you were referencing then is let's come together and raise a hundred thousand dollars who here can be the first to make a ten thousand dollar donation so we can okay, yeah. come together <laughs> and then yeah. then silence there because yeah that's a whole different ball game of execution on uh, of a plan that had been thought through in the weeks and days leading up to the event oh, yeah. and it's oh, yeah. a failure of execution and yeah. at that point I do have <laughs> a very intense flicker of anger because yes. 
I feel professionally that I have been hung out to dry in that regard and somebody yeah. hasn't done his or her job and it makes me feel like an asshole. And I don't yeah. like feeling like an asshole on stage. It makes it, me feel like an actor in the tragedy. It is. <laughs> it is bad. And so I get, Hey, and people people pity us in that moment too. Oh, you know that, right? <laughs> they do. But ultimately if you are for first and foremost representing the organization the organization doesn't look good and then secondly you're representing yourself because every time you get on stage you are a brand ambassador for lucas hunt auctions oh yeah yeah and That's so bombing. <laughs> so you know in some sense there may be somebody in the audience who was interviewing you f for a future auction and yeah was considering hiring you and yeah. helping you know to further pay your bills and you've now yeah. come to a situation where you've done everything in your power to guarantee that you were going to be able to execute on your plan and somebody hasn't followed through and there's nothing yeah. you can do about it and you just look like an asshole and it's yeah sucks. because we can execute but we cannot prosecute exactly and once we put we become judge and jury you know that it's we don't want to be in that position although like you said some people do that and use those tools of judgment but it, it to me that that will fall, come back and haunt, well, no, haunt I mean, us as an audience member they have no idea all they're seeing is something going awry and yeah there's no reason why they would believe that it's not your fault you're the one up on stage you, you are the well, figurehead yeah. of this failure and yeah. you're the ambassador well, of this failure so the remedy for that is, and I've learned this through failure, it's, is, uh, we're succeeding, you know, whatever is happening is good, whatever, you know, it's maybe not, and I've got a number in my mind and everyone in the room, but, you know, or not everyone in the room, but the, the people that we're working with are hoping for these high returns, but to the crowd, $1 is more than zero. So, you know, same thing, gratitude, positivity. Uh, but I'll put on a show if I'm if I've been hung out to dry, I won't um, let them see me sweat. Even though <laughs> there will be there will be sweat, copious amounts it, of sweat. I'll make it look like the greatest success anyway. Um, but you know, yeah, we can't prosecute. I do like you ever do the contrast um, approach where you know you, like people are struggling to comprehend, and then I'll just say. You know, like where there was once hopelessness, there is now hope. You know, where people were afraid, they're now, you know, empowered and yes. encouraged. And where there was poverty, there's now people, you know, working. And do so, like, I, that's why I feel like not taking away any of the tools, you know, like, oh, I don't want to talk about pity. I don't want to talk about fear. But um, when you use them in contrast, you can illustrate to people, hopefully. But yeah, we can't win the argument, right? This is, you got, you got a minute. <laughs> you yeah. got less than a minute to get it. And if they're not given, got to move on and um, hope that they can give at the next level, the next level. And then if they don't give, hopefully they come back and give and you've done your best to represent in a professional, courteous and sincere manner, you know, the, the people there that we're supposed to be supposed to be benefiting. So it's not about us. No. It's not our fault. Yeah. Though, if I feel that, the money is still out there and all I need is to delay. I use self-deprecation. Really? To slow it down and um, just loosen people up? Yes, if it's appropriate. Because humor in a pledge moment sometimes is not appropriate. Um, but if I'm doing a good enough job uh, as sort of a conductor of how things are proceeding and mm -hmm. I've lost the plot a little bit in terms of people actually giving and need to kick that back up again uh, what I will say is long pause mm -hmm. and I'll kind of kind of put a reflective look on my face and I'll say this may shock you but to become a successful fundraising auctioneer one does not need to possess great height <laughs> I, I know that, that 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 is something that you that may surprise you. and you know 
I'm five foot six, and it's pretty obvious I'm making fun of myself. And mm-hmm. and and so you know, hopefully I get some laughter there because you're really trying to read the audience at this point. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, but what does what is a requirement in this line of work is a very high threshold for awkwardness, and that line has served me very well in the last year great phrase and 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 then if if, and if the audience laughs that i can really kind of go after it's like i will bathe in awkwardness it is great to exfoliate the skin and then i can kind of distract from things that are going well (laughs) and and i have like this whole little riff about uh me you know not being tall uh but be having a high capacity to uh sustain awkwardness into into bathing it and then it, 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 once i got people laughing i could say okay i'm going to give you one more chance would anybody else hear and then and then proceed from there but if if things have gotten off the rails a little bit i don't necessarily like to go to the next level especially if i'm if i'm not confident that my yeah. plants are coming through and so it's like let's reset with some humor and and I'll take full responsibility for like anybody who's feeling tension or awkwardness. I'm just going to shine a bright light on it and put it on me and, and see how things think, how things go. And a couple of times it's really saved me and we've been able to pick the momentum back up and get to where we need to go. Where did you get that bathe in awkwardness phrase? I freestyle so often on stage and uh, I'm almost every single event. I try out new lines. It's a little bit like, how comedians like to go to say the comedy cellar and work on new material and just listen to an audience and what they laugh at, what they don't laugh at. And so, um, I oftentimes just bring out new lines, see if they work. Um, and some of the freestyle aspects of our job, I find to be the most satisfying, especially when we're really busy and I'm, I'm worried about burnout and just kind of getting tired of saying the same thing again and again and again and again and again. Um, so that one just came up just off the top of the head. Okay. That's beautiful. That's poetry to me. And uh, this leads me to something that I wanted to bring Wordsworth into our talk. Today. Yes. I can hear you so, shuffling through a book right there. Yeah. So uh, I had one of those moments on stage that you described where we ask and uh, there's no response. And uh, I was a little you know, it's a moment that it, pa- it passed and it wasn't that long and, and I felt that I'd recovered. But I came home that night remembering that moment and and I was thinking what to do about that moment. And I was just reading Wordsworth before bed. I don't often do that, but um, I find him to be very consoling and if we have time, I'll read one other piece. Yes, please. Helps, oh, we, we, helps we have today. a surfeit of time. <laughs> all right, we'll cut out all the boring bits. Um, this, I, so that exact moment you're talking, you know, can anyone give X amount and, and you're, there's supposed to be someone that can, but no one raises a paddle. So I came home that night and I read this line. It just really made me feel like Wordsworth was somehow there at one point. But when a lengthened pause of silence came and baffled his best skill, then sometimes in that silence, while he hung listening, a gentle shock of mild surprise has carried far into his heart. I like that. Uh, but for me, the phrase really that was the... Can we get that one when more time? Link- yeah, when a lengthened pause of silence came and baffled his best skill, then sometimes in that silence, while he hung listening, a gentle shock of mild surprise has carried far into his heart. Oh, that's good. And it just... Especially... the it's because the pause of silence baffles his best skill. You know, we're in the moment of our, we're thriving. We're at at our very best, but a lengthened pause of silence comes and baffles our best skill. And in that silence, while he hung listening, a gentle shock of mild surprise has carried far into his heart. (laughs) And it's like, but there was supposed to be a hand. (laughs) There was supposed to be a paddle. Um, and the bafflement so, uh, is so brutal. Yeah, the bafflement. That's it. But you take a bath in awkwardness, <laughs> and I love that. I just luxuriate in all the awkwardness. That, 
That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. So do you want another piece of Wordsworth? Yes, please. All right. So the thing is, reading books has become, has always been a great consolation. And uh, Wordsworth, to me, uh, was a poet who spent a lot of time alone. Uh, ate oatmeal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and drank milk. That was kind of his sustenance. Lived with his sister uh, in the, the lake district or region of uh, England. Started off very much a what we would call a Democrat idealist. You know, went to France and was around for the French Revolution, and but came back home to uh, England. He was a uh, guiding light for so many poets like Shelley and Byron and Keats. They all loved him, but he basically turned into a Trump supporter in his old age. Yeah, he completely reversed his his cause, and so people abandoned him and loathed him. But uh, he wrote about his childhood, and he wrote about his walks in the English countryside. Um, and there's been this, this piece I return to again and again, and I, w- I wanted to share it with you and your listeners. It's I'm only reading a bit of it, but it's uh, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. And I'll give you a 10-second intro. He writes about his sense of loss uh, as he grows older and his inability to do the things he used to do. Um, But then he sees a shepherd, a, a young shepherd out in the fields, and it gladdens him and it reminds him that you know, all those joys that he thinks are lost forever still exist, just not for him the way that they once did. So he finds this sense of eternity in remembering his own childhood, but also seeing that, you know, here's another young man out doing what he did. Um, and I've, this passage that I'm going to read, it's about 10 lines, has always encouraged me in times of despair and doubt. Um, so... What though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind, in the primal sympathy which having been must ever be, in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering, in the faith that looks through death, in years that bring the philosophic mind. So Ugh, the, those those the, lines. <laughs> the splendor yeah. of the grass of our yes, former of options. The grass, the glory of the flower. Though nothing can bring back the hour, we will grieve not. Rather find strength in what remains behind. What having been must ever be in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering and the faith that looks through death. Uh, I feel that Wordsworth was really a man of all time. You know, I don't even know what he was... Well, he was writing about losing that connection to former joys, but which is um, so appropriate because we've spent the last hour talking about how passionate we are for our lines of work, and yeah. the truth is that we may not be back on stage for years to come, at, for any regularity. Right, but that doesn't mean we have to give up the very thing we loved so much, which was sharing words, sharing ourselves, you know, with people uh, and connecting in a way that helped improve the lives of others. So it's a, it's a deep despair, but, um, I wanted to, I had one more thing I wrote for you actually, before we go. No, I'm, I am just so peaceful here in my pod closet. Okay. So, when you, when I read Wordsworth, I realize that there's sorrow in the world, and, and I feel it. And um, this one's for anybody who's listening that's ever sad or feels a little depression. And I was thinking this morning about what's below that depression, because um, I don't, I hate to think that depression itself is is a finality. And like you know, when we discuss the loss of things that we love, and I can't see the people that I love right now. Um, I won't, I refuse to accept that as the end, you know, the conclusion. So I was thinking of our conversation and just wanted to, I wrote this little passage after reading that poem 
Um, now I can connect with what really matters to me. The word of life. It's main happiness and central suffering. The uplifting joy of sheer existence. Though we fall, maybe, off a cliff, it is our nature, it is in our nature, to then soar to new heights. Be it known what our true destiny contains? That's a question. I think not of that, but how I may become more like the things and people of this earth I love. The independence of angels is illusion. Connected to a power greater than themselves, they fly like light in service of principles blind to us. We cannot see the best things in our lives because we focus on cracks in the floor, that which is lost instead of eternal conditions. Our planet loves us. The universe created abundance for our amusement. So much is alive and ready to fulfill our better conjectures. The positivity of today radiates into our future Let's just say that I am amazed to be able to breathe right now and will use all this breath to pathetically emulate those angels in service to a power greater than myself. If that means faith, then that is my word of life for you today. Let me just say that I am amazed to have, is it have breath today or am I, I'm amazed to breathe today. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm amazed to be able to breathe, and we'll use all that that breath to pathetically emulate those angels in service to a greater power. And myself. we've been spending some time with Wordsworth, but that's a that's a beautiful Whitman phrase right there, or Whitman esque phrase right there. I'm, oh yeah, Whitmanian. I'm a true Whitmanian. I, it, Which phrase? The 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 amazement of breath. Because that's the amazement of breath. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I feel. I feel astonishment and happiness and joy when I wake up breathing, and it, it is it is in that breath. I mean, I spoke with uh, a former university friend of mine who I hadn't seen since 2003. He's out doing social justice work uh, with marginalized communities in San Francisco. And he implored me and everyone else, out, everyone else out there to breathe and to always return to breath. And I think that hmm. I think that he was saying in a different sort of way, there is an amazement in one's breath or find amazement in one's breath. And if you can distill your being for just a few moments into that breath and find amazement there, uh, it will guide you in a very specific but also general way going forward mm. Mm. that reminds me of one of the best stage introductions i've ever seen yes uh bob roth from the uh tm the david lynch foundation yeah of course intro tom hanks once and it was utterly unforgettable because he started off saying uh you know writer actor activist you know, practitioner of transcendental meditation and while he was doing that bob roth's nose started to gush blood what and the, yeah and they were it was on the uh, you know the um, big screen they had the camera on him the imag and so the room was aghast, but yeah. um, Bob kept reading and didn't know, or, or kept speaking. He didn't notice. He was so focused on the intro. And finally, Tom Hanks started making um, blood illusion jokes to get Bob to recognize that he was <laughs> gushing blood. Goodness. And um, so there was a, what followed was a 10 minute uh, circus of people trying to stuff. Uh, first, they gave him one of those dinner napkins that absorbs that nothing. would not work. Yeah, that, that would actually <laughs> somehow make the blood more profuse. Yes, and it also, he, 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 then it took his gushing blood from his face, and he had, was holding this red, you know, rag, and Tom Hanks refused to, uh, Bob Roth 
tried to keep the interview, tried to start the interview, but Tom Hanks just kept making um, blood cliche illusions. I can't remember any of them at the moment, but and he was killing the crowd was just dying laughing. And um, Bob Roth refused to uh, to cede the stage to anyone else because it was, you know, clearly they were, they'd set this up. Um, and I was waiting to do the auction right after this. Yes, of course. And, uh, <laughs> it was so outrageous. And it just kept going on and on until finally, 10 minutes later, he gave up the stage uh, to his second in command. But that introduction, if you can, you know, start a nosebleed, that, that tends to get people's attention. Or bring a puppy. Oh, God. Uh, well, well, I, no, no, don't, don't transition out of the Tom Hanks <laughs> story just yet. So the interview ends and how i mean did you stick to your standard line of either oh no yeah, yeah. What, what did you say oh i had a blood pun um oh what was it it wasn't water was thicker oh man i i because there was when you watch someone with a nosebleed for 10 minutes you you just all the the blood analogies come to mind um i think i said something about not at some point, you know, our goal is not to bleed you dry. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that works. I, I'm, yeah. I'm sold. I'm, but, I'm paying attention to you. Yeah. But Tom Hanks had, he, he's amazing. He had done, yeah. it was, it was as if he had 20 blood uh, phrases ready to go on tap. You know, the man was, I was, I gained such respect for his wit in that moment because he just had them ready to go. Um, but yeah, I think I use bleed you dry. Um, but, um, yeah, that was, that was a good introduction. Yeah. Lucas, <laughs> we, we still have so much to talk about and you and I haven't really spoken in over a month. Uh, let's, yeah. let, let's commit to jumping on another call, uh, as early as next week and talking okay. some more stuff over. Cause I still want to talk business with you. I want to talk about how you've been. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we, we kind of found ourselves uh, frolicking in the meadow of auction technical um, specifics, and yeah, we th did. Th th that is a very specific meadow, and a meadow I enjoy, but it might not be for everybody else. And there is such a greater landscape to explore. Yeah, we got almost academic with it. <laughs> but hey, <sighs> but you know what? Sometimes that's the route you have to go. Yeah. Well, really? my friend, take so much care. Uh, have a productive weekend editing and thank you brother let's let's talk again next week all right i'll be in touch be well and you thank too. you you bring a lot of joy uh, with these convos it, it, it is it's a two-way street mm. all right brother bye bye